Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry skies, see your hand in time, in mind to lead me through the night. If you have your Bibles, let's turn quickly to the book of Genesis chapter 11. While you are turning there, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, uh, I didn't know that we were going to pray specifically for our schools in my role as Campus Ministry International Director. Really what that means is I oversee a ministry where to date we have about 340 apostolic campus ministries that are on colleges and university campuses across North America. We're right now, on, almost on a daily basis, we get reports of students who are being filled with the Holy Ghost, being baptized in swimming pools on college campuses that are being healed in dorm rooms, that Bible studies and evangelism is happening. Why not here? Why not here? The same ministry, just at a different level, the ministry of P7 is the comparable thing that's happening in junior highs and high schools. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of junior hires, high schoolers, college students who have accepted the call to say, you know what, I'm not going to wait till I'm in my 20s or my 30s or my 40s till I'm licensed minister. I'm going to go and teach Bible studies and win my world right now. Why not here? Why not Everett High School? Why not Everett Community College? Why not Washington University? I am believing that God is divinely and strategically positioning this church to see a great revival and harvest on these campuses. And to our young people who have the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, go in faith, go in boldness, and he will give you everything that you need to accomplish the work that he has set before you. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it tells us that the whole earth was of one language. Everybody say one. And of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Verse 3 says that they looked at one another and they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. Verse 4, and they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, the Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. I understand this morning that we are living in a culture of polarized opinions. That you do not have to look very far. And in fact, you could probably log on to social media right now and you could find somebody who has an extreme opinion about something. Whether it's masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines, Democrat or Republican, border control, walls or no. It doesn't matter what it is. We are living in a culture that is divisive. And the enemy would love nothing more than to see that division that is happening out there seep into the church body because he knows that if I can divide the body, then I can thwart the purpose that God has for the body in this local city. And so I've come with just a simple reminder. And for the next few moments, I want to preach to us from this subject, simply unity at all costs. Unity 
at all costs. One more time, let's ask the Lord to help us. God, we thank you for your presence that is already in this place. I thank you for your tremendous power that is evident through worship. I pray right now that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we would receive your word, that God, before all is said and done today, that you would prove yourself faithful yet again, that something would happen supernaturally today, that we would be able to point the finger back at you and say it was only by the hand of God. Let your voice be the loudest voice that we hear today. In the name of Jesus, everybody say amen. And you may be seated. We do not have to read very far into the book of Acts to recognize that one of the defining characteristics of that early church was their spirit of unity. In fact, as early as Acts chapter 1, we read that Jesus is about to be ascended into heaven. He has given some final instruction to the disciples, telling them to go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Ghost, which he said would come in just a few short days. We find then that this group of people return to Jerusalem and they make their way into an upper room. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, we read that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, with Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. That phrase, one accord. We flip over one page, the story continues in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, a verse that no doubt we are familiar with this morning when it tells us that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all still with one accord in one place. We know this story that it is here in that atmosphere of unity that the Holy Ghost is poured out for the first time on these 120 men and women. And Peter begins to preach that Acts 2.38 message until when the chapter is done, we find that over 3,000 people have been converted. At the end of the chapter, we read about the continuation of this church's growth in verse 46 when we read that they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. I don't know about you, but that last phrase there is something that I wish to God would define our churches, that every single day, People who were looking for salvation could find it in the presence of unity. We flip over two chapters to Acts chapter 4. We find that following the release of Peter and John after the miracle with the lame man, they have made their way back to their company and they're sharing what has happened with the chief priests and elders. And in verse 32, we read that the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And finally, in Acts chapter 5, we read in verse 12 that by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And here it is again. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And the result in verse 14 is simply that believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and of women. In each of these accounts, we find that unity was a central theme that was present in that early apostolic church. It quickly becomes apparent that they were unified both with the purpose and the plan of God and unified with each other. We find that together that church prayed and together that church fasted. We find that together that church gave and together that church served. We find that together they worshiped and together they reached and ultimately we find that together they grew. As a result of their togetherness, as a result of their unity, we find that the door was open for God to show up and for God to show out. 
Today what I understand as we sit on the pews of living faith on this Saturday morning is that we are not some second-rate knockoff version of that early apostolic church. We are not some pseudo-Pentecostal church or some counterfeit Pentecostal church. And so I want to submit to us this morning that if the pattern of the book of Acts holds true, then it is, our in, it is in our best interest as a church body to fight for unity at all costs because we find that in the presence of unity there is going to be revival we find that in the presence of unity there is going to be a harvest where there is unity broken lives are going to walk into this building and they're going to be restored where there is unity lost family members are going to begin to wake their way back to the church where there is unity the opportunity for miracles and signs and wonders will be will be present Where there is unity, we will have an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Because when we have unity, it opens the door for God to show up and for God to show out. Now, as as, as great as these demonstrations of unity in the book of Acts are, I would contend this morning that that is not the greatest demonstration that I can find in the Word of God. But rather, I would submit to us that the greatest demonstration of the power of unity is found in the text that we read at the beginning of this message. Genesis chapter 11 lets us know that after the flood, a group of men and women have gotten together. The Bible is specific to tell us that they were all of one language and they were of one speech. Chapter 11 verse 4 tells us that they devised a plan. They said, come, let us build a city and a tower and watch their purpose. They say we want this construction project, the top of it, to reach up to heaven, not so God could get glory, not so that we could erect a monument to our creator, but they say so that we could make for us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The next thing we find is that God peers over the balcony of heaven and he observes what this group of people are doing and he says, behold, the people is one and they all have one language. And this they begin to do. And then he speaks this phrase that I would argue is one of the the, the most profound phrases in Scripture when he says, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Those of you know the story know that the next thing that happens is God babbles their language. He causes disunity in the body and ultimately they begin to segment and spread off in various different directions. Consider with me this morning. Now here we have a group of ungodly men and women who have an ungodly purpose and motive that was rooted in nothing but pride and self-glorification. And yet we find that God himself comes onto the scene and he says, I have to do something to disunify them because as long as they are in unity, nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. And so this morning it begs the question that if that was the case with a group of ungodly, godless men and women, what on earth could God do in the middle of an apostolic church who got together in one mind and one accord, who linked arms with one another and were unified in the purpose and the plan of God for this city? What could he do in the midst of unity in an apostolic church? When we look at this story, I think it's worth noting That God does not say, behold, the people are one because they are from the same city. 
God does not say, behold, the people are one because they are from the same bloodline. He does not tell us that the people are one because they're from the same background. Nor does he say the people are one because they share a race or an ethnicity. But rather we find very specific language when he says, behold, the people are one and they all have one language. We find that God specifically ties their unity to their speech. Why? Because something significant happens when a group of people begin to speak the same thing. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is writing to the church. He tells us, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God and by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. It is the will of God that the church begin to speak the same thing. In study of business, there are many business organizational leaders who have set off on the task of changing an organizational structure. Maybe a business leader who inherited an organization and they're a new CEO who knows that they've got to change some cultural aspects of that organization. If you were to sit down with some of these major business leaders who have gone through this process, eventually you'd get to a point of conversation where they would be willing to tell you that the first step of changing culture is you need to change the conversation. The first step of adjusting culture is you've got to get your team speaking a different language. No doubt if you were the leader of an organization and you were about to launch out on a new initiative, there are a couple things I can guarantee you. No doubt there are going to be a few early adopters who are immediately going to jump on board and get behind the vision and say, you know what, we've got that, we can do it. And as sure as there's going to be early adopters... There's no doubt that there's going to be naysayers as well who are immediately going to begin to poke holes in everything that you've laid out. They're going to give you all the reasons why it cannot happen. And so a savvy business leader begins to introduce buzzwords that are attached to the vision of the organization into conversation because he knows if I can get my team to keep speaking things consistently, eventually for those who weren't on board in the first place, eventually if they speak it long enough, their belief system will catch up with their words because it matters what we speak. Pastor, we find this sentiment, oh, you've already touched on it. We find this sentiment even displayed in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You went through so eloquently today, walking through the same verses. I'll recap just briefly, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find verses 4 and 5, what the Jewish people would know to be the Shema. It is the very tenet of their faith. It is the bedrock of their faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Verse 6, we've read it, but we'll read it again. He tells us, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. You need to talk of them when thou sittest in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You're buying them for a sign upon your hand and let it be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them upon the doorposts of your house and on the gates. Why would he have given this command? He's speaking to parents, he's speaking to, to families, and he's saying, this is the instruction. You need to take that so important tenet of our faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. 
And every morning when you wake up, the first thing your kids need to hear you say is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When you sit at the breakfast table, you let them know that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Whenever you walk out the doors of your home and you look to the right and you look on the doorpost, remind yourself that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. When you walk out the gate of your property, you remind yourself that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Why? Why would he be so intentional to say, you've got to intentionally embed this truth in your family? Because he understood that the children of Israel were constantly surrounded by polytheistic cultures. Everywhere that they looked, to the right and to the left and in front of them and behind them were cultures that did not believe in one God, that did not believe that Jehovah was God. And he knew that maybe, just maybe, there's a day that somebody, a young kid from from the family, a a teenager, begins to wander out of the house a little bit and, and he becomes enticed by this other culture and he's tempted to begin to believe that, no, there's not just one God. But he understood if at an early age... If you can begin to ingrain in your family, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And a day later in his life when he might be tempted to walk away, there will be a voice replaying in his head that will say, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God is one. I'm going to love the Lord my God with everything that I have. We see this played even modern day. I was thinking you were talking about intentionality. My, my dad with my sister and I, before we would go to school many days, One of the last thing that he would say before we'd walk out of the door is he'd look at me and he'd say, Caleb, today I want you to remember you're not an Egyptian, you're a saucer. You're not an Egyptian, you're a saucer. And I can tell you right now, there is nothing incredibly significant about being a saucer. It's a weird name that most people would never choose to take. But for our family, what my dad was trying to remind me every day is when you walk out of the doors of this house, it is not your calling to be like everybody out there. Whenever you walk onto your school campus, it's okay if they don't always understand you. It's okay if you don't always fit in. It's okay because you need to remember what your identity is and you are not an Egyptian, you are a saucer. It's something that influenced hearing those words over and over and over influenced the way that I live my life. Why? Because what we hear influences what we believe. For some of you parents, maybe you have a routine. I've seen these videos on social media of, of these dads with their young daughters, maybe as early as four years old, that every single night before they go to bed, they stand their little girl up on, on their bed and they have, have her repeat after them. They say things like, I am strong. I am beautiful. I am loved. I am valued. I am called. I am chosen. And and one by one, the four-year-old girl is just repeating these things. What is that dad trying to accomplish? He's simply trying to get it rooted down deep in that young girl, a belief system in who she was and where her value and identity comes from because he knows that no doubt at some point in life, there's going to be a day where she doesn't feel strong. There's going to be a day where she doesn't feel valuable. There's going to be a day where she doesn't feel like she's called or that she's chosen. But if I can let her hear that over and over and her speech can begin to speak it, then eventually her belief system can catch up with her words. It matters what we speak. That's the question this morning. What would happen if we intentionally changed our conversation? What would happen if instead of always being quick to talk about our problems, we made up our mind that instead of being quick to bring up the problem, we will be quick to talk about the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. 
And I know that there's a lot of issues in the world right now, but instead of immediately defaulting to talking about all that is wrong with our life, what if our default was God is still sovereign, God is still holy, God is still on the throne, God has never failed, God is still Alpha and Omega, He has never let me down, He is an on-time God who always, what if that was the default? What about for some of us, what if our mentality was to take the mentality of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4? Most in this room are probably familiar with this story. The Bible tells us that this woman was barren. She was unable to bear a child until she had an encounter with the man of God. The prophet Elisha tells her, your womb will be open, and when the time of life is fulfilled, you will bear a son. Sure enough, true to the prophecy, nine months later, she's holding her baby boy. The Bible lets us know that this young man grows up, and best we can estimate, he's, he's a young teenager, maybe 12, 13 years old. He's out working in the field with his dad whenever he falls down dead. That mama, that praying woman, goes and she grabs the lifeless body of her boy, and she had built a room for the prophet back off their main house, and she lays that dead body in the room, and she tells her husband, I'm going to see the man of God. I imagine that that mama was on a mission. I imagine that there was a little holy anxiety or, 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 or just not rage, but that there was, there was just a little bit of determination in her step. She said, God gave me the promise. It wasn't to die 12 years later. And so she says, I'm going to see the man of God. On her way to meet the man, the prophet Elisha, the Bible tells us that his servant Gehazi meets her in the way, and he asks her three simple questions. He says, woman, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? And is it well with the boy? In my mind, again, one of the most amazing passages in Scripture because we see the faith of this praying woman when she looks that man back in the face and, and eye to eye, she speaks three profound, powerful words when her response is simply, it is well. Was it well? No. The promise was laying dead back at the house. But something in that woman said, I refuse to give place to doubt and negativity and fear. And as long as I am able, if I'm going to speak anything into the atmosphere of my home, it's going to be faith that God is still able. And God, if he gave me the promise, it wasn't so that it would lie dormant, but he can bring it back to life. For some of us, that's the word this morning. That the situation you've been walking through, the trial you've been walking through, the, the headache and the mess that you've been wading through, the word this morning is simply, it is well. It is well. It may not look well today, but you've got a God who is fighting on your behalf. You've got a God who knows the end from the beginning, and he is already working the way out. And so something needs to rise up in your spirit that I'm not going to speak doubt, and I'm not going to speak in fear, but I'm going to speak faith every morning when I get out of bed that it is well today. It it is well today. It is well today. It is well today. It is well today. It is well. In fact, I wish somebody right now would exercise a little bit of faith. Somebody who's been in the middle of the fight and you've maybe drugged yourself to, sh to church here on a Saturday morning. I wish that something would rise up in you and you would throw your hands up towards heaven and you would begin to declare that I know it may look hopeless and I know I may seem like I'm at the edge of my rope, but I'm speaking today that it is well. It is well. It is well. Come on for just a moment. I believe faith can rise in the room right now. That when you leave this place today, it will not be under the bondage of anxiety and depression. But you can leave with a renewed sense of peace and joy and hope. Because you understand that God is working on your behalf. It is well. It is well. It is well. 
What would happen if as a church body we made up our mind that instead of rehearsing the issues in the church, we're going to be quick to highlight the successes of the church. Be honest with you, over the last few years of my life, I've had the opportunity to be in a number of different churches. And I tell you, every single one of them have something in common. They've all got issues. Every one of them. Because the reality is, as long as I'm a part of the church, and as long as you're a part of the church, the church will never be void of issues. But what I've learned is that the church on its worst day is still so much better than the world on its best day. And if I'm going to have my family anywhere, there may be a little bit of humanity that creeps in every once in a while. But I am committed to the church because I know that this is the lifeboat. I know that this is my, 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 my ship towards salvation. I know that I would rather be in the church. This morning I was thinking about what it must have been like to be on the ark when that door shut. Noah and his family there for the first day it might have been fun. Maybe it felt like a cruise ship the first day. But I imagine that a couple days in with the stench of humanity and the stench of flesh that was in that boat that there were days that they were thinking this is awful. But then they reminded themselves of what was going on outside and, and they reminded themselves I would much rather be in the safety of the boat, in the safety of the church than sinking or swimming out in the world on my own. Parent, please understand that no matter, no matter what happens, Please make an effort to, to reaffirm the value of the church, the value of church attendance, the value that no matter what, we are going to be in the church. We're going to be in the church. What would happen if we made up our mind that instead of just reliving the glory days of previous years gone by, that every time we're together, we would talk about the unprecedented, miraculous, unparalleled revival that God wants to pour out today. Instead of constantly looking over the shoulder and saying, man, what great revivals we had years ago. The faith says we are just on the brink of the best days of this church. I believe that living faith has not seen anything yet. That God desires to fill this building with lost souls from this area. And that there would be churches that would be planted out of this church. It is God's will. We need to start speaking it in faith. Start speaking it in faith. On ten different occasions in the book of Acts. We find this phrase that we read a few times at the beginning of this message. This phrase, one accord. Ten different times it's used in the book of Acts. Most famously in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. It tells us that the people were all in one place and in one accord. What I've recognized is that the one place is the easy part. It's not incredibly difficult to get a group of people in one place. But it's this one accord thing that tends to trip us up. That phrase, one accord, that's used to describe the early church. It's actually a combination of two Greek words. The first one means to rush along, and the second one means in unison. And one commentator, hear this, one commentator put it like this. He says, the image of one accord is almost musical in nature, as in the playing of various notes at the same time, which while different, harmonize in pitch and tone. It gives the image to differing instruments of a great concert that are under the direction of a concert master. May I ask this question? Has anybody in here ever heard an orchestra warm up? Anybody? Maybe you were going to, to some kind of production or you showed up early to, to maybe you were going to listen to an orchestra play and you got there in time to hear them warm up. Anybody, anybody ever heard them warm up? In case you haven't gotten to experience this just pure joy, 
I'll let you in on a little secret. That as talented as that orchestra is, their warming up is about the most chaotic, ungodly noise that you will ever hear in your entire life. As all of these incredibly talented people are playing different parts of the song and they're tuning their instruments and playing different notes and playing different keys, it is mass chaos during warm-up time. Until that conductor steps on the stage, he steps up to that little podium and he grabs that magic little stick that he uses, he taps that thing on the podium, he brings the orchestra to attention, and all of a sudden where there was chaos, as they begin to follow the leading of the conductor, they begin to rush along in unison. They begin to follow the same tempo and read from the same music. And as long as they're doing those things, it creates a beautiful masterpiece, the likes of which that the single unit by itself would never have been able to accomplish. This is a picture of the body, that we're all playing different instruments. We've all got a different role to play. And I look at this praise team, and man, they're so talented. There's not an instrument up here that I could play. It would just be mass chaos in general. And so I look at all of you, all of you talented, talented people, but the, the reality is if all we had were piano players, it wouldn't sound too good. We could hop along a little bit, but we'd be missing some things. If all we had were drummers, my God, imagine that. <laughs> just a bunch of drum cages up here, people who share the same talents, the same giftings, the same ability, and we're doing the same thing. It would be mass chaos. But the beauty of the body is that we're called to play different roles. It's not your job to fulfill my purpose, and it's not my job to fulfill your purpose. But when we come together, as long as we are following the conductor, and as long as we're playing from the same music, and as long as we find that rhythm and that tempo, we begin to rush along in unison until there is a beautiful masterpiece that God begins to play in the local body. This is the picture of the church. All of us have various roles to play, but it takes every single one of us. No matter how long you've been in this church, we need you. You've got a role to play in this church. You are valuable in the body. We need you. This image is almost mirrored by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 when he repeatedly compares the church to a body. I'm sure we're familiar. He reaffirms to the Corinthian church that the body is not made up of one member but that every member of the body has a role to play in the fulfillment of the body's overall purpose. He drives this point home when he says, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor can the foot say to the head, I, I have no need of you. But finally, he sums it up in verses 25 and 26 when he tells us that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This past Wednesday night, my pastor was preaching on, on this passage of Scripture, and he said something I had never heard before. He was talking about the body's response to pain. And maybe you've shared the experience that he demonstrated. He asked the question, has anybody ever been walking through a room and you caught your pinky toe on a piece of furniture? You know that feeling whenever you're, okay, I've got a couple hands that understand the agony of that moment where your pinky toe, everything was good, and then all of a sudden it's like out here to the side. He said the moment that happens, it's not just the pinky toe that's in pain, but all of a sudden you begin to hop around and you feel it all the way up to your head. Your entire body felt the pain of its smallest member. He made this statement. He said, I can judge your connectedness to the body by how you respond when a member of the body is hurting. 
I can judge how connected you are. Based on when, some, when one member of us is struggling and one member of us is having a bad day and one member of us is in the fight, the body comes together. What it lets me know is it is never in my best interest to kick you while you are down. It is never in my best interest to throw dirt on you while you are struggling. But rather, we need every member of this body. And so the natural response of the members should be, if I know that one member is struggling, if one member is on the ground, then I'm going to get down with them. And I'm going to say, I just want to remind you that as long as you're in the fight, I'm in the fight with you. As long as you're going through the battle, I'm going through the battle with you. Because if we don't have every member of the body, the body is fighting handicapped. And we need every Every member of the body in this end time hour. We need every member of the body. And if you're in this room, because it will happen to all of us at some point in time or another, and you're the member that's just hurting a little bit, you're the member that walks into the room and you don't feel like you've got much to offer, the good news is, is you're in a safe place today where the other members can come alongside and say, if you're in the fight, you're not in the fight alone. Because we're doing this together. I love the body of Christ. Is anybody grateful for the body? Anybody ever been that person that you were the one and that you were fighting a battle and, and it was because of the strength that you got from the body that you recognized you could keep on going? I thank God that the day that my dad was diagnosed with cancer, that I had the body. Because when I got that call, I began to melt down. I began to not think straight. I couldn't see it clearly because all of a sudden tragedy struck. But I thank God that there was a body that was binding together in prayer. That there was a body that came together to support. I'm coming close. Musicians can come. A few years ago, my wife and I, we were youth pastors at a small church in, in Texas. A small town, city of 5,000 people called Center, Texas. And I had a habit. We had a youth room. And uh, I had a habit of every morning I would go into that youth room and and we had a little bit of an altar space like this. And so it was my, my morning habit just to pace the altar and to pray. That was where I did my prayer time. I'd pray just personal prayers. And then I'd pray over the church and over the youth group, all that good stuff. On one particular morning, I'll be honest with you, God speaks to me in weird ways. Like for some people, God is the audible voice or they see an angel or they send one, God sends one of those planes that writes in the sky. And that's how God speaks. God speaks to me in, in just different ways sometimes. And so I'm pacing that morning, and it's not been too often in my life that God has given me a vision. But as I'm pacing, there was a moment where I just stopped. And, and in my mind, I could see this vision. It was such a strange picture. The best way I can describe it to you is that more than likely, it was like a, a scene that I had seen on National Geographic one day. Or maybe I had seen it in a magazine because it looked like I was somewhere in Africa. And all I could see at the center of this vision is I could see this herd of animals. It was some, some type of deer, whether it was an antelope or a gazelle. My wife and I went to the zoo recently. She's like, was it that one? I don't, I'm not a deer expert. <laughs> I have no idea which one it was. But I could see this herd of deer-like creatures just in the center of this, this vision. And they were just minding their own business. You can tell it was peaceful. They were grazing. There were a mixture of males and females, of young and old. You could, could see the variance in that herd of deer. And all of a sudden, the vision begins to pan out a little bit. And I can see something in the corner that was not visible before. In this long patch of grass, I could see this lion that was crouched down watching this herd. And you could tell. You knew it was coming. It's seen this play out before enough times to know this wasn't going to end well for somebody. 
And so I see this lion, and you can tell he was just planning his mode of attack. He was ready to pounce. He was just waiting to time it at the right moment. And all of a sudden, it was like this vision kicked into high gear. Like this intense chase music just began to play in the background as out of nowhere, this lion begins to jump out of the long reeds and rush towards that herd. Immediately what I saw is that herd began to disperse in every imaginable direction. Some went north and some went south. Some went to the east and some went to the west. And what I witnessed is that all of the adults, the, the mature deer, they were able to beat the lion. Because the strategy was, I don't have to be the fastest as long as I'm just not the slowest. But the end result was the collateral damage was the young, the weak, the sick, the elderly, the feeble. They were the ones that became easy prey for the lion. And sure enough, I watched as he got one of them under the attack. All of a sudden, the scene changes. It's still a vision, but it changes. And this time, I, I see a similar setting. It still looks like we're in Africa somewhere, maybe around a watering hole. But I see a completely different type of animal this time. I know God speaks to me in weird ways. This time, instead of deer, I see this herd of elephants. They're just minding their own business, much like the first vision. They're just kind of doing their thing. You can see a mixture of big ones and small ones, and, and I'm assuming male and females, but I have no idea how to tell that. And so I just, you see the variance of this herd of elephants. And I can see as the vision pans out again, there's a lion that's waiting to pounce, and all of a sudden that vision kicks into high gear. That lion begins to, to run towards the elephants with everything that he has, but this time I watched a completely different response. In the first, I saw them scatter every which way. It was every man for himself. But you can put that picture up for me. The, the response of the elephants when they're under attack is completely different. I watched as the strong, mature elephants begin to get all of the weak ones, all of the ones who were vulnerable, and they begin to put them in a circle in the middle. And then one by one, every one of those mature elephants begin to take their place on the outside of the circle as if to tell the enemy, if you want to get to them, you're going to have to come through me. If you want to get to our young, you're going to have to come through me. If you want to get to our new saints, you're going to have to come through me. If you want to get to the feeble and the weak and the struggling, they're not on their own. They're not in this battle by themselves, but they've got a tribe behind them that are standing in the gap and saying, if you are weak, that's okay. Every one of us have moments in our life where we're the one that needs the covering. Every one of us have seasons in our life where we're not strong enough to be the barrier, but we're the one that's huddled down just trying to survive but in that moment if the body is functioning like it's supposed to the mature the adult the ones who are strong in that season begin to position themselves around them and to tell the enemy if you want to get to them they're not in this fight alone but you're gonna have to come through me this is the role of the body this is what you are a part of, that collectively we are stronger and better and more capable of accomplishing the will of God than we ever would be on our own. As we stand all over this house, today as we move to altar call, give a very specific appeal. I told the team today, I feel a very specific appeal for altar call. I believe that God's going to move on our behalf today. But in a crowd this size, there's no doubt that there are at least a handful of people that today you walked into this church house and you are the one who is weak. 
You are the one who is fighting. You are the one that's got situations that you desperately need the hand of God to work in. Let me let you know right now from the outset, you are in a safe place. This is not a place of judgment. This is not a place of condemnation. This is a place of hope, of healing, of peace, of restoration, of redemption, and of salvation. And so what I want to ask, and I understand if you're not comfortable, that's perfectly okay. But if you're in this room and you are in need of healing, you've got something going on in your life, in your body, you need a healing touch of God. It can be as simple as a common cold or as complicated as cancer. It doesn't matter to God. He's able. You take care of every bit of it. The rest of the story is the church prayed, and today my dad is cancer-free. God is still able to heal cancer, and so there's no reason he can't perform on your behalf today. If you're in this room and you need a healing, what I'd like for us to do is if, if you're comfortable, I want to use this side of the altar for anybody who needs healing. And if there would just be one who would say, you know what, I'm that person that would take that first step. Sometimes you just need one that just kind of breaks it loose. If there is somebody who needs healing in your body today, I want to invite you to come and stand in this part of the altar. You can come whenever you're comfortable. If you're not, we can pray in the pews. That's fine. The second call today is for anybody in this room who has never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a period of time and you've heard about the Holy Ghost talk. You've heard this. You've seen others who have experienced this as they've spoken in other tongues. I want to let you know that that gift is not just for a select few, but that gift is for whosoever will. In fact, today, God would love nothing more than for you to have that experience where you speak in a language you have never spoken in. Is it strange? Yes. But is it supernatural and the coolest experience you'll ever have? Oh, yeah. I would also say don't knock it till you try it because after you've tried it, you'll never be able to get enough of it because the Holy Ghost is a life-changing experience and it's for you today. If you need the Holy Ghost, I want here in just a moment to invite you to come and stand here towards the middle and we're going to pray. And I believe every person in this room who's seeking the Holy Ghost, needs the Holy Ghost, that you can get it this morning. The last, and thank you, I see, I see one coming for healing. If there's anybody else, you can come even as I give this final instruction. The last group of people that I would appeal to today are the people who walked into this room and you're just tired. You're just tired. You know, 2020, 2021, we thought 2021 was going to be better. And then sure enough, it looks like it's just up and down. It's like there's no end in sight. And maybe you've been going through it with your job and your family and you're feeling the pressure and you're feeling stress. You feel the heaviness. If you're in this room and you're just tired, I believe that today God can redeem and God can bring a fresh, fresh move of his spirit that would bring restoration to your spirit today. And if that's you, I want to want to reserve this side of the altar here. If you need peace, if you need strength, if you need healing, if you're just tired of being tired, then God, God has an opportunity to work on your life today. Right now, everybody close your eyes where you are. For those of you who fit one of these categories, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come and find your place. Because God is able. If you need healing, come and find a place to pray for healing. If you need the Holy Ghost, you can come pray for the Holy Ghost. If you need just restoration and you need a fresh move of the Holy Ghost, I want you to come and find a place to pray. Now, to the rest of the body, what I would say is that the body possesses everything that it needs to minister to the body. Not because of who we are, but because of the Spirit of God that works on the inside of us. If it is comfortable, I want to invite you to come and gather around your saints who have an expressed need and begin to pray one for another. This is where the body can begin to...
to minister to the body. If you're in this room and you're not the one who is fighting today, I encourage you to stretch a hand towards the front or to come and put a hand on your brother or sister and begin to pray for them as God begins to bring healing in this place right now. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church. Ghost, you give me peace.